Well, let's continue to worship the Lord as we go to His Word, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and as you know, we've been studying the Gospel of John um, in recent days, and um, um, to be honest with you, it's been hard to uh, really focus and concentrate in the last couple of weeks in light of some of the things that have been going on in our lives as a family, and our son's recent diagnosis of diabetes, and um, it's been uh, a challenge just to kind of keep up with everything that's going on, and and um, and uh, staying on top of even just pastoral duties, you know, not just the studying of his word and preparation to preach, but even just uh, returning phone calls and getting to be with people and meeting with folks, and that's something I love to do so much and so much a part of what God's called me to do, and so feeling a little bit behind and and uh, in all that, but um, God has just been drawing my mind and heart back to familiar passages, and I'm, I imagine that's what He does to you as well when you go through difficult times and challenges um, in your life. That He just reminds you of passages that you've gone through before uh, in your own heart, in your own mind, passages that have ministered to you in dark days, difficult times, and uh, you just kind of feel comfortable and familiar there. And you find rest in those passages, and you find solace, and you find really the truth that you need to be thinking of and meditating on um, when you're going through whatever you're going through. And so one of those passages for me is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And I wanted to just uh, look at these verses with you this morning and just kind of talk through them and uh, see what we can learn about how God wants us to respond uh, no matter what happens to us in life. And uh, oftentimes we are uh, faced with unplanned, unpleasant circumstances, and uh, God has given us counsel in His Word how He wants us to respond. And so here we find in Philippians chapter 4, I think a very godly example uh, of how He wants us to respond through the Apostle Paul. Notice what he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. He says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Uh, Just to remind you, Paul was writing from prison, uh, and uh, he was writing to the church in Philippi, and uh, here he was uh, wrapping up his letter, and he wanted to thank them for their generosity in providing him some financial support. Uh, to help him with his ministry, and particularly in his difficult situation uh, in prison. Notice what he says in verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things... Through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. Having have an abundance, I am amply supplied 
Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This past couple of weeks, I've had to remind myself of a series of questions that I have counseled many others to ask themselves whenever they're faced with a difficult, unpleasant situation. And uh, it really, it's a logical form of argument, um, sort of like, if this is true, then this is true. And it really is helpful to think through uh, this logical form of questioning uh, whenever you come up against a difficult situation. And these are the questions. Number one, could God have changed this or prevented this? Could God have prevented this or could God have changed this? And obviously the question is what? Well, of course, God's sovereign. He can do anything he wants. So he could have very well prevented whatever it is that we're faced with from happening. Or he could have changed it and made it different. The second question is, did God prevent it or change it? Well, if you're in it, he didn't, right? And then the third question is, why not? It's a great form of logic to take yourself to think th- something through, to reason through a, a trial, a tribulation, an issue, a, a challenge in your life. Could God have prevented it? Of course he could have prevented it. Did he? No. The question is, why not? And we know that God will often bring trials into our lives to teach us things, that we might grow and mature and become more like Christ. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what do you do, what do we do when things don't go the way we want? How do we respond when when things don't work out the way we had hoped or we had expected? What goes through our minds? What comes out of our mouths when we are in an unplanned, unpleasant situation, whether it's in your marriage Uh, Maybe it has something to do with your children. Maybe you're struggling with your marital status that you're still single and you wish you were married. Uh, Maybe it has something to do with your work, your boss, uh, your company, um, your school, maybe a a teacher, a classmate. Maybe it has to do with your finances, uh, your health. Well, I think we all will admit that at times we are tempted to get upset and irritated and frustrated and we grumble and complain. And I think these sinful reactions reveal a lack of contentment. And uh, contentment is one of those elusive things, right, that we uh, have, I think, spend our entire life trying to find. And uh, it seems like as soon as we find it, then it goes away again, right? You say, well, what is the root? What is at the root of being discontent? Well, I think James gives us some insight Uh, into uh, contentment and our battle with contentment. In James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? In other words, why are you fighting? Why is there so, why do you get sideways with other people? Why do you uh, get into arguments? And uh, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. So you commit murder, you're envious and cannot obtain. So you fight, you quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so we see here Paul, or excuse me, James talking about desires and pleasures and lusts and cravings 
And so we have these desires that go unfulfilled. We have these cravings that are not satisfied. We have these expectations that go unmet. And uh, these things we wish for and want, we don't get. And these unmet desires, these unmet cravings, these unmet expectations, I think, are at the root of our discontent. Now, we need to realize there's nothing wrong with certain desires. The word lust there makes it sound like it's bad, right? Because we always view lust as something negative in in our vernacular. But in the Bible uh, times and in in the Greek language, the word epithumia, the word for lust, just simply meant a strong desire. And it could be positive or negative depending on the context. And so there's nothing wrong with a desire to be married. Nothing wrong with that desire. Nothing wrong with a desire to have a happy marriage, to have a peaceable marriage, a fruitful marriage. There's nothing wrong with a desire to have sex within marriage. Uh, Nothing wrong with a desire to live in a comfortable house, uh, to have enough money to pay the bills. There's nothing wrong with that desire. Nothing wrong with a desire to be healthy, to be well. There's nothing wrong with that desire to to have kids that honor and and respect you. There's nothing wrong with a desire to be able to relax, to be able to take some time off and to rest and have a vacation. Nothing wrong with those desires. But when we have to have these things to be happy to be content, then our desires have become inordinate. In other words, they've gotten out of control. And we allow ourselves to be carried away by our desires and lusts, according to James chapter 1, right? And that leads to sin, and sin leads to death. And so I think the key is, what do you do? How do you respond when you don't get what you want? Or you get something you didn't want, right? Um. When things don't happen the way you wanted them to happen, I mean, do you get angry, do you get frustrated, or are you content? And I think we would all admit that we struggle with being content when things don't go our way. And I think that's why the Bible uh, is so helpful to us, because it provides uh, help and hope in our quest for contentment. It provides, uh, first of all, exhortations to be content, First Timothy chapter uh, 6, verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, clothing with these, we shall be content. And so here is an exhortation to be content. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So there's instruction that we have in the scriptures about contentment, but also the Bible provides us with examples of content people that we can follow. Sometimes it's not enough just to hear the instruction, to hear the exhortation, right? It also sometimes is even more helpful to see the example. Show me someone who fleshes out these principles in their own life. Um, I'm a visual learner, if you will, right? I want to watch some guy do it, and that just helps. And I think at times, God raises up godly people who serve as examples of the principles that he teaches in God's word that really help us to kind of get us over the hump as far as putting some of these things into practice in our own life. And one of those examples uh, that God raised up is the Apostle Paul who, according to what he writes here in Philippians chapter 4, had learned the secret to being content. That, in and of itself, should get our attention this morning. Somebody learned the secret 
to being content. And uh, he, in fact, he reveals the secret. And so it's not a secret. The, the, the contentment, there's no secret to being content because it's clearly revealed here in God's Word. And now we're going to look through what Paul has to say here, but again, just to help you understand the, the, this in its context, again, Paul was done um, writing about theology. He was done even teaching them how to implement it in their lives. And now at the end of this letter, he was simply wanting to express his gratitude to the church in Philippi for their generous support of him. But at the same time, he in no way wanted to rob God of any glory in in that somehow he was not, um, that he was dependent on their support and not God. He wanted them to know that he was completely dependent on God, whether they had given him anything or not, that he was okay. But he did want to let them know how grateful he was, how much he appreciated their, their gift, but he didn't want to give the impression that Christ wasn't sufficient for him apart from them. So he's trying to work this thing out, and he's kind of going back and forth saying, hey, I really appreciate what you did. I, I thank you so much, and, and man, I, you know, I couldn't get on with that. But then, you know what? I wasn't sitting around in my jail cell waiting for your gift to arrive either because I know God takes care of me. And so he's trying to work this thing out, and it takes him 10 verses to do that. And as he's working this all through, we really see him here revealing the secret that he had discovered to being content. And I would just break it down into really five secrets here. There's really five secrets, five things that we need to do in order to experience the contentment in our lives when we face unpleasant, unplanned for circumstances like Paul was in. He was not planning to be in prison. It wasn't pleasant for him to be in prison. He was in an unplanned, unpleasant situation, and yet he had learned to be content in that unplanned, um, unpleasant circumstance. And so what do we what do? We do? How, what's the secret? Well, let me, let me show you some things that, that come out of this passage that I think will help us learn to be content even as Paul was content. First of all, we need to understand God's process, okay? This is the first secret to being content. We need to understand God's process. Notice what he says in Philippians 4.10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. In other words, hey, I thank, I thank the Lord that you uh, demonstrated your concern for me by sending this gift. Verse 11, not that I speak from want... For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Don't miss that word. We're all looking for the content thing. So we're like, okay, there's content. I see the word content. But don't miss the word before it, the word learned. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. In other words, he wasn't naturally content. It's something he had to learn. He had to learn by practice. He had to develop a habit over time. Listen, we need to understand something about contentment. It doesn't come naturally to any one of us. We're not born content. Those of you with little children, little babies in particular, you know that's true, right? Oftentimes you're dealing with fussiness, and, and, and even as the kids get older, there's grumbling, there's complaining. I mean, we've, we've worn out Philippians 2.14 in our house where Paul said, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And we've constantly said to our kids, hey, listen, you know, hey, no complaining, no arguing, okay, which is an expression of a discontent attitude. And so sometimes Kelly and I need to remind ourselves of that. Hey, no grumbling, no arguing, okay? Well, what's the deal here? Because contentment um, is not something 
that comes to us naturally. It's something we have to learn. We're all prone to be discontent. So the question is, well, how do we learn it? Well, obviously, God puts us in situations that give us opportunity to learn to be content. That's the only way to learn to be content is to be put in unplanned for, unpleasant circumstances, right, where you have to learn to be content. So the point is, all of us are in, in process, okay? None of us has arrived spiritually yet, and so the way we get to where God wants us to go or to be is through trials. We talked about this on Wednesday night, James 1, uh, verses 2, 3, and 4, considered all joy. My brethren, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops endurance, let endurance have its perfect work, that you might be what? Mature and complete, lacking nothing. God is all about filling up where we're lacking in our faith, and he uses trials to do that. And he knows where every one of us is weak in our faith, and he custom fits trials for each one of our lives, right, to fill up where we're lacking in our faith, so that we're mature and complete, lacking nothing. And so what he chooses to do in our lives as a family, what he chooses to do in your life as a family, as in your life as an individual, as your life, as a, it's different. Uh, they're, they're various trials. They're multicolor, polka-dotted trials. Literally, that's where we get the word, the English word polka-dotted from that multicolored trials that the Lord brings into our lives, custom fit uh, for uh, our need. So really, when it comes down to it, all of us at any given time in our life are in one of three places, okay? We're about to enter a trial, we're in a trial, or we just came out of a trial. So where are you this morning, right? Maybe, maybe you're like, hey, it's, it's all good, man. Don't preach on trials here. I don't want to have to apply that, right? Um, that's why I've never like, preached the book of Job. I didn't want to see what would happen in my life if I started preaching the book of Job, right? The point is, okay, you're, it's like, hey, it's all good. Well, guess what? You're in that zone of, of heading into a trial. You've you're, you got a trial coming. That's just the way it works. That's the process. That's how God designed it. Or some of you are like, hey, I'm in it. I'm in it, Pastor. I'm in it right now. I'm in the trial right now. And some of you are in that sweet time of just come, having just come out of a trial and you're just enjoying uh, peace and rest and even that spiritual growth, right? Those lessons that God taught you that you, would, you couldn't have learned any other way than, than, than what you learned in that trial. So you're always in one of those three places. Jerry Bridges has written an outstanding book called Trusting God. In fact, I uh, just uh, recommended it recently to someone and they told me just this last week, they said, man, this book is amazing. Where, where has this book been all my life? And they wish they had had it 10 years ago. And it's just a great theology of God's sovereignty and God's love and God's wisdom. And uh, anyway, he says this, Jerry Bridges says this in this book. He says, if you stop and think about it, you'll realize that most godly character traits can only be developed through adversity. God in his infinite wisdom knows exactly what adversity we need to grow more and more into the likeness of his son. He not only knows what we need, but we need it, or excuse me, but when we need it and how best to bring it to pass in our lives. You wonder how Paul got to be such a strong Christian? Well, how about this list of adversity? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 in imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the, from the Jews 39 lashes. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from, apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And so there's no question in our minds how Paul learned to be content in every circumstance, because guess what? He was, about, he was put, God put him, sovereignly put him in about every imaginable circumstance, right? Anything you could imagine, Paul was in it. And so he went through it. And so that's how he became such a strong Christian. I think you would admit that, that we tend to grow weak in times of blessing, but we tend to grow strong in times of adversity. You probably know that to be true in your spiritual life, right? You kind of get lazy, you kind of get indifferent when everything's going great, when you got smooth sailing, right? But when all of a sudden the trial comes, that's when you begin to grow. Again, Jerry Bridges in Trusting God says, God knows exactly what he intends we become, and he knows exactly what circumstances, both good and bad, are necessary to produce that result in our lives. God makes no mistakes. He knows infallibly, with infinite wisdom, what combination of good and bad circumstances will bring us more and more into sharing his holiness. His blending of adversity and blessing is always exactly right for us. And so we need to understand God's process, okay? If we want to learn to be content, right, we need to understand his, his process. And in order to learn to be content, he, he puts us through trials. He ordains trials for our lives. Secondly, another secret to being content here that Paul talks about is we need to embrace God's providence. We need to embrace God's providence. Notice verse 11 again. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And he goes on to describe those whatever circumstances, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So he's expressing that he had it all, right? There was times that he had it all, and there was times he had nothing. And so he went through those times, and that's how God taught him to be content. And so basically what Paul's doing there, he's describing like the full spectrum of human experience, the ups and downs, the good times, the bad times, some plans work out, some plans don't work out. It's all part of God's providence in our lives. And I think this is a very key concept that we, 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 we need to understand and grasp and embrace God's providence. It's very helpful in learning to be content. You say, well, what's God's providence? Well, let me give you a simple definition of God's providence. God's providence is his constant care for and absolute control over all his creation for his glory and the good of his people. So it's God's control and care for his people. Um, Again, Jerry Bridges talks about God's providence in these terms. He says, did your car break down when you could least afford the repairs? Isn't that always true? That's when your car breaks down, when you don't have money in the bank, bank account to, or in the checkbook to, to, to write a check. Did you miss an important meeting because the plane you were to fly in developed mechanical problems? 
And then he says this, the God who controls the stars in their courses also controls nuts and bolts and everything on your car and on that plane that you were to fly in. If we are to trust God, we must learn to see that he is continuously at work in every aspect and every moment of our lives, whether it's the traffic jam, the misplaced wall, the flat tire, the argument with your spouse, the miscarriage, the lost job, the car wreck, the rebellious child, the unfair coach, the, the unfair professor, the speeding ticket, the long checkout line that you're standing in, that leaky, leaky refrigerator, the dead battery, the failed test, the sore throat, right, the common cold to cancer answer, it's all under God's control. And he's caring for you in the midst of all of that. Nothing, even the smallest virus, escapes God's care and God's control. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we are there by divine appointment. That's just the way God wanted it to happen or wanted it to be. And there's a reason why he planned it that way. Jeremiah Burroughs has, an old Puritan, written a great little book called Rare Jewel, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And uh, he says this, this is how he defines contentment. Listen carefully, it's just a beautiful, powerful definition. He says, contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me say that again, and I want you to listen carefully. Contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to, you're like, oh yeah, I got it. I got to submit to this. I don't really like it, but I'm going to submit to it, right? I know it's God's will for me, so I'm going to submit to it. No, not only you freely submit to it, but you delight in it. That's taking contentment to a whole new level, right? It's not just submitting Right? I got I to gotta take this medicine. It's, I know it I know uh, doesn't taste real good, but I know it's good for me, so I'll take it anyway, right? It's not just submitting to it, but it's delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. He goes on to say, contentment is submitting and taking pleasure in God's disposal. A contented heart sees the wisdom of God in everything. The Lord knows how to order things better than I. The Lord sees further than I do. I only see things at present, but the Lord sees a great while from now. I think we're all familiar with one of the, our, our great sisters in the Lord, Johnny Erickson Tata. Just a tremendous testimony. Um, her life as a beautiful, young, athletic teenager, full of life, full of vigor. One summer day, she was out swimming in the Chesapeake Bay and she dove off a platform and she hit her head on the bottom and uh, broke her neck, instantly paralyzed from the waist down. And uh, she talks about in her autobiography how she was laying there in traction uh, in the hospital for weeks and uh, people would come in and pray for her for healing. And she fully expected God to heal her because she had all these people praying that God would do this miracle, and yet he never did. And we have to realize that while God could have healed her, right, he's God, he can do anything he wants. But for infinitely wise and loving reasons, he chose not to heal her, not, he chose not to answer the prayer for healing. And so Johnny goes on to describe how she eventually moved from just coping with being a quadriplegic to embracing God's will for her life. And at the time, she had no idea of what 
God had in store for her life and how eventually God would use her testimony to literally impact millions of people around the world. It was all part of God's plan for her life, to bring him glory and to accomplish good in her life. And so we're talking about embracing here God's providence, and it really takes it takes a couple attributes to embrace God's will for our lives. First of all, it requires humility. It requires humility. And, and humility is, is you know you're humble when you can get to the place when you say, you know what, God, you know it's best. You know it's best. See, typically what we say is, Lord, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get this. You know, I, I don't think this is really best for us. Uh, if it was me, I wouldn't have picked this for us. Um, in fact, I don't think I deserve this. I think I deserve better than this. That's pride, right? And so we need to remember we deserve nothing but hell. And so anything better than hell is we should be thankful for, right? And so we just need to be humble and just say, God, you know what's best. And then secondly, we need to have faith. We need to have faith. We need to trust in the Lord and be absolutely convinced that God knows better than we do. And we need to be able to honestly say, God, I don't, I don't get this, okay? I don't get this. But, but you, you're not asking me to get it. You're just asking me to trust you. And so, Lord, I, 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 don't, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. Jerry Bridges, again, says it well. He says, God does not delight in causing us to experience pain or heartache. He always has a purpose for the grief that he brings or allows to come into our lives. Most often, we do not know what that purpose is, but it is enough to know that his infinite wisdom and perfect love have determined that the particular sorrow is best for us. And then he makes a profound statement. He says, God never wastes pain. He always uses it to accomplish his purpose And his purpose is for his glory and our good. Therefore, we can trust him when our hearts are aching and our bodies are racked with pain. Trusting God in the midst of our pain and heartache means that we accept it from him. An attitude of acceptance says that we trust God, that he loves us and knows what is best for us. And so we need to embrace God's providence if we're to be content. Thirdly, we need to also rely on God's power. We need to rely on God's power. And here we come to the most familiar verse of this, of this section. Paul says, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. And this is one of those all-time favorite verses, right, that sometimes we kind of take out of context and use to apply to a whole assortment of things that I don't know that were originally on Paul's mind. Um, Paul was not implying here that he could do anything he wanted to or put his mind to. A lot of times athletes will adopt that verse, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and it's, a, it's a kind of more of a willpower thing, and it's a, it's a you know, uh, I'm going to set my mind to this, and I can do this. And well, what Paul was saying, he was just simply saying that through the strength that Christ provides him, that he could do all the things that God ordained for his life to do. In other words, all the things that were God's will for him to do. In other words, God never calls any of us to do anything or endure anything that he doesn't also provide us with the strength to do or to endure. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation, no trial has overtaken us, but that which is common to man, right? A lot of other people have to go through the same kinds of things that we might be experiencing, and God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able 
But with every trial, with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so you can what? Endure it. And so you can handle whatever God ordains for you. You might not think you can handle it, right? You're like, I don't know about what, what God was thinking about me being able to handle this. I don't think I can handle this. Well, God must think you can. And he's about to show you that his grace is sufficient for you, right? And that your power, his power is perfected in your weakness. The point being here is that we will never be content in our own strength. No matter how hard you try, no matter how you grit your teeth, I'm going to be content. You're not going to be content, okay, in your own strength. You need to rely on the strength that God provides us in Christ. You can only be content in Christ. And when you're relying on Christ, and so the, the question is, well, how do, I, how do I rely on Christ? How can I plug in to the strength that Christ provides? I mean, it sounds great. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, how do I have access to the strength that I need for this trial, for these circumstances, this unplanned, unpleasant situation that I'm in? Where do I go? Well, you go to Christ and you abide in Christ. John 15 talks about how apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That we need to do is stay connected to Christ. So how do we stay connected to Christ and be be able to draw power from Christ? Let me give you some suggestions. Number one, you need to confess to Christ any cravings, any desires that you have apart from him. I mean, this morning when I was taking communion in first service, I was confessing certain things that I desired more than Christ. And I said, Lord, forgive me because Jesus, I want that sometimes more than I want you. And so we need to confess, be honest with the Lord and just be honest with Christ and say, Christ, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm liking, I'm desiring these things, craving these things, wanting these things more than I want you. Secondly, you need to study the Word of Christ. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, right? That, that you need to be studying the Word of Christ, and He'll empower you as, you as you study His Word, as even as we're doing right now. We're plugging into the power of Christ by studying His Word. Thirdly, give your burdens to Christ through prayer. God invited us to come to Him in prayer through Christ. Christ is our intercessor. And so we need to go to Christ and, and, and have him intercede with us to the Father. So we need to give our burdens to Christ through prayer. Fourthly, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be controlled by, we need to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, right? Ephesians 6, 18, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent to us by who? Jesus. Jesus promised that he would send a help, helper, a comforter, somebody to come alongside us and, and help us to live out all the truth, uh, to understand the truth and live out the truth that, that he gave us, that Christ gave us as his disciples. And so he said, I'm going to send you the Spirit. So you need to lean on the Spirit, plug into the Spirit's power, be controlled, yield to the Spirit. Uh, number five, be focused, stay focused on Christ. Stay focused on Christ, uh, it's particularly his example. Um, you think about what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, where he says, uh, the writer says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. Listen, 
Nobody's taken you out in your front yard yet and tried to crucify you, right? You may be going through a rough time, but it's not as bad as what Christ went through. So you keep your eyes fixed on Christ and what he went through for us. And we can draw strength from that. And then just finally, I would say that we need to develop such an intimate relationship with Christ that nothing else matters. I mean, you could have everything in your life taken away, and it doesn't matter because you still have Christ. And that's all you want. That's all you need is Christ. And so you find your contentment in Christ. And so I think it's important that we rely on God's power, the power that he's given us in Christ. And then number four, another secret to being content is to focus on God's people. Focus on God's people. Notice verse 17. He says, Paul says to the Philippians, not that I seek the gift itself. He was thanking them for the gift that they had sent more than once. Uh, They had given to him multiple times, apparently. He says, not that I seek the gift. It's not like I want the gift. He says, "I I seek it for the profit which increases to your account. You know, when, you, when that gift comes and I receive that gift, I open up that package, whatever, it's not like, oh, wow, look what I get. I'm excited about what you're going to get for, for sacrificially serving a brother in Christ. The Lord's going to bless you. You're going to profit spiritually. Your, your account before the Lord is going to be increased, if you will. God's going to bless you for sacrificially serving someone else. And so again, here's Paul in prison And uh, it could have been all about the care packages for him, right? Oh, wow, another care package, all right. But he wasn't about the care package. He was about, man, I'm so glad they sent me that because that's going to go well for them. Good things are going to happen for them. So again, where was his focus, on himself or on others? His focus was was on the Philippians. And I would say just a very simple yet profound game changing principle here is where's your focus? And we, we know that our tendency is just to sit around and focus on ourselves, right? And on our problems and our broken expectations and our unfulfilled desires and our unrealized dreams. And if we do that, we're going to be miserable. And so the counsel here is, listen, stop having a pity party. Stop really having a pride party is what that is. Call it what it is. A pity party is a pride party because you're just focused on yourself, Right? And get your eyes off yourself and get involved in the lives of other people and you'll realize that your problems aren't as bad as you thought they were. Philippians chapter 2, 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. You know, this principle really came home in my heart that week we spent down at Texas Children's and uh, walking back and forth to the room, to the family um, waiting area and going out into the hallway and get, getting a bite to eat from time to time and just, just taking in all that was around me at this hospital and, and, and overhearing conversations of parents who had already been there for like a month and a half and they still didn't know what was wrong with their kid. And walking down the hall and just peering into some of these rooms in the same hallway that our son was in, and, and kids hooked up to all sorts of contraptions, who knows what was wrong with them, and, and then to hear in the middle of the night these blood-curdling, painful cries, and, and you're just like, you know what, my kid's resting quietly here, 
We know what his condition is. We know how we can fix it, right, and manage it. And, and it was just a matter of, you know what? We got it good. We got it good compared to what else was going on. And so I think it's important that we need to make sure we don't just focus on our problems. Uh, I was even talking to somebody uh, after first service who, 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 who's had to endure way more uh, in their life than I'll maybe ever have to endure. I don't know. We'll see what the Lord does. But he, this, this family has, to go, has had gone through tremendous trials, one after another after another. And I was just commending uh, them for uh, what an example they've been to me. Uh, of putting this, practice, putting this into practice because they're focusing, their, their focus is, is, could very easily be on all their problems, but they're constantly focusing on others and trying to help others out and how they can meet other people's needs. And it's just a beautiful picture of this principle. That we need to focus on God's people. And then lastly, we need to simply trust God's provision. We just need to trust God's provision. Verse 18, but I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. He was the messenger from the church in Philippi to, to him in, in, in prison. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then look at verse 19. And my God will supply your needs. You've supplied my needs, and now my God's going to supply your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Notice what it says there. And my God will supply all your needs. Does it say wants in your Bible? It doesn't say wants in my Bible. <laughs> it says needs. And so we need to realize that God never promised that he would meet our wants, our cravings, our desires. He would not always meet our expectations, right? He wouldn't always give us what we want, but he did promise to meet our needs. And so I think sometimes God graciously chooses to fulfill our desires. He gives us what we want when we want it. And that's just because he's a good and gracious God. And you're like, wow, we prayed for that and he answered that prayer. Wow, wasn't that awesome? We never thought that would actually happen, but it did. Wow, that's amazing. And so when he does that, we should thank him. But when he doesn't, we need to trust him. Because there's lots of times when you pray for something and you really want something and it doesn't happen and that's when you could be discontent, that's when you could get angry, that's when you get frustrated and bitter and that's when you need to trust him. There's a great example of this back in the Psalms, Psalm 131. David, uh, just a short little psalm here and it's entitled in my Bible, Childlike Trust in the Lord. Childlike trust in the Lord. Jesus used to talk about having the faith of a child, right? There's something innocent and sweet. Just a, a child is so trusting. But notice this different spin or different take on childlike trust. He says in verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, I'm not, I'm not proud enough, I'm not arrogant enough to think I can figure you out, God. I'm not going to sit here and analyze your, your dealings with me. Uh, this is beyond me. This is too difficult for me. And so I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Now you ladies get this imagery way better than us guys. So let me try to do a uh, try to explain this a little bit of this, this whole weaning concept here. 
Weaning is the process in which a mother breaks her child's dependence on her milk by teaching them to eat other things instead. Fair, ladies? Is that fair? Okay. Making sure I'm in, I'm in ground I don't belong. I'm in a territory unknown, right? But, uh, but this can be a very painful process for both mother and child because the child fusses and complains and cries and resists and struggles and it's hard for the mother to watch that. They don't understand why the mom won't let them have what they want and so they get mad and they throw a temper tantrum, they sulk, and, and that's hard for the mother, Right? But the mother knows that it's all necessary in order for her child to grow up and reach maturity. She doesn't want her 13-year-old drinking a bottle, you know, coming to youth group, right, with a bottle. And everybody's going, what's up with that kid? Why is he still drinking a bottle, right? She knows that this has to happen in order for her child to grow up and mature. And so over time, the child begins to calm down, doesn't fuss as much, they don't fret as much about not having what they used to think was so indispensable to their lives, And in time, that mother is able to actually take that child in her arms and rest their head quietly on her chest, and they're content to not have what they formerly wanted so badly. And the point is that they moved into a a new, deeper relationship with their mother, and they've learned to trust that their mom loves them and, and, and knows what's best for them, and so they submit to her wise care of them, even though it isn't exactly what they wanted or expected. And again, I just think this is a beautiful picture that David paints here in in Psalm 131 of a child of God learning to be content with God's provision for them. And in order for us to grow and mature as believers, as Christians, God has to wean us off some stuff. And oftentimes it's a painful process. And we fuss and we fret and we whine and we complain and we struggle and we don't understand why God is doing what he's doing and, and what he's doing. And sometimes we get mad at God and we have little, little tantrums and we just, we just sit around and sulk and, and, you know, God must not really love me, right? But eventually as we grow out of spiritual infancy into a, a deeper, more intimate relationship with God, we're able to go without these things that we, that we thought were just, we had to have them. And we find comfort in the, in the very arms of the one who denies these things to us because we trust in his tender love and we submit to his wise care for us. And so just like a weaned child learns to be content with what his mother gives him to eat, so we must learn to be content with what, with what God provides for us, even when it isn't what we wanted or thought we needed. I began by talking about this form of argument, this logic. You know, could God have prevented this? Yes. Did he? No. Why? Kind of a form of argument. Martin Lloyd-Jones does a similar thing in his book, Spiritual Depression. It's really a classic work of Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. And it's the last chapter is called Learning to Be Content. And he just exposits... Um, the same passage that I just walked through with you, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. But what he does here at the end of the chapter, he, he says, this is what Paul was doing. Paul was working on an argument here in his head, um, kind of a form of logic. And he said the apostle's logic was something like this. And he goes through a series of steps here, seven steps in Paul's logic. Number one, conditions are always changing 
Therefore, I must obviously not be dependent upon conditions or circumstances, right? Circumstances are always changing, so I I obviously cannot be dependent on my circumstances. Number two, what matters supremely and vitally is my soul and my relationship to God. That is the first thing. Number three, God is concerned about me as my father and nothing happens to me apart from God. Even the very hairs of my head are all numbered. I must never forget that. Number four, God's will and God's ways are a great mystery, but I know that whatever he wills or permits is of a necessity for my good. Number five, every situation or circumstance in life is the unfolding of some manifestation of God's love and goodness. That's profound. In other words, everything that happens to you is a manifestation of God's love for you. I'll never forget standing in, in the hospital room at Texas Children's with, with uh, Jennifer Pigott as their little girl Haley had just been diagnosed with cancer. And she just looked at me with tears and said, Ken, I've got to believe that this is a manifestation of God's love for me and my daughter. And I thought, that's profound. That's how a mom gets through that trial, is believing, trusting that somehow God is acting in love towards her daughter and even towards her. Therefore, he says, my business is to look for this particular manifestation of God's goodness and kindness and to be prepared for surprises and blessings because his ways are not my ways, neither his thoughts my thoughts, He says, what, for an example, is the great lesson that Paul learned in the matter of the thorn in the flesh? It is that when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was taught through physical weakness this manifestation of God's grace. Number six, I must regard circumstances and conditions not in and of themselves, therefore, but as part of God's dealings with me in the work of perfecting my soul and bringing me to final perfection. And then lastly, whatever my conditions may be at this present moment, They are only temporary, they are only passing, and they can never rob me of the joy and the glory that ultimately await me with Christ. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests here that Paul had reasoned and argued things out in his mind like that. He had faced conditions and circumstances in the light of the Christian truth and the Christian gospel and had worked out these steps and stages, and having done so, he says, let anything you can think of happen to me I remain exactly where I was. Whatever may happen to me, I am left unmoved. I trust that you and I, by God's grace, with the help of Christ, can reason our way through the trials that God ordains for our lives so that we can respond in the same way that Paul did here and that we can truly say that we are, by God's grace, unmoved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and just how helpful it is just to uh, walk us through difficult times in our lives. And Lord, I know there's multiple uh, people and families right now going through a myriad of trials and tribulations. And I just pray that the truth of your word would just comfort their hearts today and that you would grant us the grace to, to just think through these trials, Lord, from a biblical perspective. Lord, that we might respond in ways that are um, exemplary, Lord, to know that many eyes are upon us and that we would suffer well, Lord, and that we would be a blessing to uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but Lord, we'd also be an example and a witness to unbelievers uh, who see us going through what we're going through and are amazed uh, that we can 
just have a, the, the peace that we have and that you would give us a platform to share Christ with them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.